So we are looking at a letter to the Philippians, um, and we started that look last week, and we are continuing that look today. And so last week we looked at chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and today we are looking at verses 12 through 26. And so I invite you uh, to hear these words from Paul. Paul writes, I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. Some proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. These proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that I have been put here for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is far more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy and faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we come to you this morning on this beautiful Sunday. We give you praise. We pray, God, that you would be with us wherever it is that we are, whatever it is that's happened this particular week, that we would come and that we would ask, what would you have to say to us today. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So the first time that we lived in Pensacola when I was growing up, we, my father and my sister and I, we went to a a movie theater on the Navy base. And sometimes uh, Navy bases, at least at that time, they were a little bit weird in that the movie theater wasn't actually its own movie theater. It was actually kind of made out of an old airplane hangar. And so for some reason, I kind of remember that even as a five or six-year-old. It kind of stood out to me. And the movie that we went to go see was the movie Song of the South. Now, how many of you have seen the movie Song of the South? All right, that's quite a few. It's, a, it's an older movie. This was not its initial release. It was released in the 1940s. How many of you remember seeing it initially, Butch? No, um, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, 
It is an older but a great, uh, a great movie. I think a little strange. It's where the song "Zippity Doo Dah, Zippity Day." Anyone remember that? Uh, came from. But uh, for the use of today, what I remember particularly is one story. It's the story of Brer Rabbit, Brer Fox, and Brer Bear. Right. So you may know the story. Brer Rabbit was not well liked by Brer Bear or. Brer Fox, and so uh, I'm not really sure why, but for some reason he always was getting underneath their skin, and so uh, they were always trying to trap him. They were always trying to catch him uh, so that they could harm him, or even worse, perhaps. But they were never able to because he was very nimble and very smart, Brer Rabbit was, and so uh, he was always able to get away until one day Brer, Rab, or Brer Fox and Brer Bear decided that they had a new plan, and that was to create a tar baby, something that looked like a real person but was actually just a ball of tar. And so uh, they did so, and they put it right there on a path where they knew that Brer Rabbit was going to be not walking Hopping, right? This is what Br'er Rabbits do. They hop. And so, sure enough, Br'er Rabbit, I love this story. Br'er Rabbit is hopping. Uh, and uh, Megan doesn't like the story as much. I love the story there. Br'er Rabbit is hopping, right? And Br'er Rabbit, because Br'er Rabbit is polite, as all Br'er Rabbits would be. And so he says hello, but the tar baby says nada, right? Because it's not real, right? But Br'er Rabbit doesn't know that. And, and well, Br'er Rabbit doesn't really like that very much that he didn't say anything. And so he goes back and he says, you know, hello. And, uh, uh, but still, the baby would not say anything. And so Br'er Rabbit gets more and more angry, right? Because this is just rude. And so finally then, Br'er Rabbit decides to take out his anger by punching this tar baby. And so it does. But of course, when that happens, its little fist gets caught and the tar, right? Well, that, of course, this makes Br'er Rabbit even more angry. And so sure enough, Br'er Rabbit then takes another hand and then a foot and then another foot. And before you know it, he's all wrapped up in tar and he can't move. And at just that moment, Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear hop out of their hiding places and say, ha ha, finally, we've got you. Right? And so we're all sweating, right? Those in the audience, because we like Br'er Rabbit for some reason. And, and so then they begin, uh, Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear, they begin to say, oh, they begin to come up with things that they're going to do to hurt poor Br'er Rabbit. One says, I'm going to club you. Another one says, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to skin you. Another one says, I'm going to hang you, right? And they're all getting excited. And after each time when they say one of these things, Br'er Rabbit says, oh, that's fine. That's fine. Absolutely. You know, if you want to hang me, that's fine. Please, whatever you do, don't throw me into the briar patch, right? It's, oh, I'm going to club you. Oh, yeah, I'd love to be clubbed. Please club me, whatever you do. But whatever you do, don't throw me into Right, and so on and on each time until finally there's a little glimmer in Br'er Fox's eyes. And he says, I know what we're going to do. We're going to throw you in the briar patch. And all of a sudden, Br'er Rabbit says, no, 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 please don't. I beg of you, please don't do that. He says, oh, no, we're going to do it. And sure enough, they throw Br'er Rabbit into the briar patch. And, and Br'er Rabbit makes these loud noises as if he's in much pain. But of course, that's all ended with a bunch of laughter because that's exactly where Br'er Rabbit wanted to go. Because even though it seems uninhabitable, even though it's full of thorns and things that would wound you and hurt you, if not worse, Br'er Patch, the, bri the Briar Patch is Br'er Rabbit's home, right? And so he has totally bamboozled the other two because what they meant for ill, of course, Br'er Rabbit knew this would be perfect. 
Amen. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, is this on Netflix? Or you may be thinking to yourself, what does this have to do with Philippians? Well, it seems to me that in many ways, this is exactly what we see going on in this part of the passage of Philippians. That those things that seem like they would be bad, actually, Paul somehow is able to brer rabbit those things into showing how it's actually something good. Right? And so he is thrown into prison and he knows that the Philippians are thinking, uh oh, this is not good. It's not good that Paul, the person who planted us, this person we love, that he is all of a sudden in jail, right? And, 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 and as we've talked about before, whenever there's something bad that happens, we always begin to make up stuff, right? Well, like maybe, maybe, maybe Paul did something wrong. Maybe, maybe Paul's finally having to atone for his past sins. And so, and so God's angry at Paul and that's why he's in prison. Or, or perhaps some of them began to think, well, you know what? This is the end. This is it. The gospel's done. There's no way that the gospel can continue because Paul was the great evangelist. Paul was the one who was starting so many churches. And with Paul being gone now, we are finished. There's no way that we can continue, right? And this is exactly, of course, what Paul would have known. He would have known that the Philippians are struggling because Paul is in prison. And so Paul says, no, 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 no. Paul says, do not listen to what your thoughts may be saying. Do not think that the Romans, a.k.a. Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear, do not think that they have gotten the best of me, or more importantly, the best of the gospel. In fact, he says, this is exactly the place to be. Because what you may not realize, Philippians, is now the gospel is being proclaimed in ways that are even greater than it was when I was outed out of jail. In other words, all of a sudden, this thing that the Romans meant for evil has been made for good, right? We remember this maybe even in the Joseph story. Remember the Joseph story and at the very end, Joseph's father dies and the brothers are all anxious and nervous because they think, "Uh uh-oh, this is it, you know, now Joseph's finally going to be angry. And Joseph says to them, what you intended for evil, God intended for evil. You see, Jesus in some ways, is this sacrilegious? I don't know. But Jesus in some ways is the Br'er Rabbit, right? And the fact that again and again, God takes situations that seem hopeless, that seem to be full of despair, and is able to bring life and to have people thrive through them. And so Paul says, look, here's what's happened. I've been in here, and because I'm in here, other people have gotten bold, and they have begun to proclaim the gospel and even greater ways. We don't know for sure why Paul doesn't say. Perhaps it's simply because of the fact that they thought, well, if Paul's still brave and courageous in the midst of prison, then I guess maybe we're not in prison. Maybe we should continue to be brave and courageous. We don't know why. We just know that what they had intended for evil, all of a sudden now the gospel begins to thrive right? We see this even in common current day, right? In my own lifetime, right? Whether or not it's the church that's been persecuted in China or in the former Soviet Union, that then they go in and all of a sudden, what do they find? There in the midst of that briar's patch, they find a thriving church. They find a gospel that is alive, right? And so Paul says, no, 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 don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. But that's not the last or the only time that Paul does this Br'er Rabbit trick. You see, he does it again. He then says, you know what? There are people 
There are other people who are proclaiming the gospel, he says in our passage. These are my rivals. These are people, and they are doing these things out of envy. They are doing these things out of anger. They are happy that I am in jail. And you might think, well, if people are happy, like if someone was happy that you were in jail, or if they were happy they looked at you and they thought, aha, finally, he's suffering or she's suffering. Ah, that's great. That you might become bitter or might be angry, right? But not Paul. What does Paul do? Paul looks at that and says, hey, the gospel's still being proclaimed. I don't care. I look at it with joy. And what they have meant for evil being against me, hey, as long as the gospel is moving on, I don't care what their motives are. I don't care how pure or impure they are. What I care about is that people are hearing the good news and seeing the good news of the gospel, right? He brer rabbits that thing. Now, as an aside, I want to also point out that as I was looking at this passage this week, it was also this great reminder to me as a preacher. It was a great uh, sense of peace and grace. Of the fact that even when our motives are not completely pure, and even when we are not perfect, that the gospel can still be proclaimed. Right? I know that there are times, I've talked here uh, of late a few times, I think, about my own driving habits and how they may not always reveal perfection. Right? It may surprise you to know that not all preachers are perfect. Is that a surprise? If one of you could act surprised, that'd be great. And I know that there are times, right, because I hear these things, well, maybe pastors shouldn't have shared that, right? But I want you to know, A, that I'm not perfect, and B, here's the thing. The gospel, thank God, is not dependent upon me. The gospel is dependent upon the Spirit and upon Jesus Christ who says, I can use anything no matter how poor of a vessel it may be. And that is a great relief. But not just to preachers. As an aside to the aside, what it also is, is actually something that each of us should be aware of, which is that God calls each and every one of us to be about His work, even when you do not feel as if you have everything figured out, and even when you do not feel that you are perfect. What I oftentimes find is that people are so scared to be hypocritical that they don't want to be about the work of Jesus or say anything about Jesus or the gospel because they're afraid, well, you know what, I'm kind of imperfect and whatnot. And I want you to know that if you wait for you to be perfect to try to spread the good news of the gospel, that gospel ain't getting spread by you. Right? Oh, you were all happy to say it was okay for the preacher to not be perfect, but not for yourselves, right? right? Thank you. So, right, so that no matter what, right, don't wait until you have all of your ducks in a row. Don't wait until you have Jesus completely figured out. Don't wait until you feel like you have the Holy Trinity of perfect heart and mind and, and heads before you can, or, or and hands before you can go out. No, 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 no. Even in those times, when maybe our motives aren't pure, even in those times when we are struggling, the good news of the gospel can continue to be proclaimed because it is about Jesus, it's not about us. But Paul's not done because Paul then does one more reversal of what we would assume in this particular passage, which is then he begins to talk about death. 
And Paul talks about death in this kind of refreshing but yet kind of strange way where instead, as oftentimes happens with us when we look at death and we have fear or anxieties about it, and understandably so, Paul, when he looks at death, Right? He's able to almost say, well, you know what, I'm almost excited about this because I realize that when I die, then that means that I get to be even closer to Christ. If I live, I get to be closer to you all, and I love being with you all. But if I die, then I get to be closer with you. In fact, he goes on to say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? And again, then, you have this strange thing, this briar patch of death, which, which most of us, and perhaps even the Philippians, would be looking at with some anxiety and fear. And Paul says, no, 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 no. This is not something to be fearful about. There is joy even amidst facing death. As I was thinking about this particular passage this week, I realized that in so many ways, of course, this is a great passage. Right? It speaks to, it's a great example for us of what it looks like to be singularly focused on the gospel. What it looks like to be able to see everything through the lens of Christ. Paul is this great example to us. And yet I also struggled because I realized that he is such a great example. That it might be difficult for us to ever feel like we could reach that, right? In other words, it's kind of like if you play basketball and the only person that you've ever seen play, let's say, is uh, showing my age here, but is Michael Jordan, and you thought to yourself, the only way that I could go out there and play is if I play like that. It would mean that the vast majority of us, a.k.a. all of us, would never play. And I am never keen on preaching something where I say, this is great. You know what? Look at this great example. And you all go home and you say, hey, that Paul, he's phenomenal. That's great. But no way we could do it. So let's just get on with our normal lives. Nothing good happens then. And so my question in many ways has been, what exactly does it look like for us to live like that? Now, I want to be clear as well. That though Paul is a great example, it should not be understood that Paul never struggled with things. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about being imprisoned. And as he is imprisoned, he says that we were crushed almost to death. And he's speaking beyond just physical. He's also talking about emotionally how crushed they were while they were in prison. In other words... What Paul is saying here is not that we should have this great plastic facade, that everything is great, nor that we should be emotionally stoic, right? But as N.T. Wright says, in the midst of that, he never gave up belief. He always continued to believe. Somehow he was able to see things differently. And as I wondered how was he able to do this, my eyes were kind of drawn to the 13th Verse In the 13th verse, the NRSV says that Paul is imprisoned for Christ. That Paul sees himself as being imprisoned for Christ. The NIV says something like how he is in chains uh, uh, for Christ. But in the literal Greek, it doesn't use the preposition for. It uses a preposition in. I-N. Which means then... That Christ, that Paul is literally saying, I am, I am imprisoned in Christ. And you may recall, because in other epistles, Paul talks about how he is in Christ. 
Now, I realize that that may not sound like much of a big deal, and maybe it's not, but one of the things that I've noticed is that more often than not, probably 90% of the time, when we talk about someone being in Christ or something being in us, what we end up saying is that we think that Christ is in us, right? I mean, even with children, a lot of times the, 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 the language we use is that you know children are inviting Jesus into their heart, right? And there's a sense of Christ being in us, which is good and right. But I've begun to wonder whether or not we should also be reflecting even more so on what difference it makes if Christ, if we are in Christ, rather than just Christ being in us, so what's part of the reason why I use this timeline? We talked about this back in March. Here's the timeline right here. It's a timeline that we go over with all of our new members. Um, there you have, this is what I call kind of Christ, if you will, or, 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 or Scripture or God, right? We have this timeline. And, and when I did this back in March, by the way, if you were curious, I accidentally had switched up Joseph and Moses, and three or four people noticed it and pointed it out. And I said to them, don't ever correct me. No, I said that that's exactly right. Great job, right? I want people to know Scripture well enough to know when things have been, have been flipped, right? And so we switched it back because I didn't want to be made a fool twice. And so there you go. But what we talk about, the importance of this is that, again, that oftentimes we think about, oh, this is when Christ kind of joined my story, right? Whenever I knew about Christ, accepted Christ, you know, put in. But what I think is that more often than not, really what we should think about is how, how are we joining this other story of Christ that people have been joining for years and years and years, for thousands and thousands of years, Right? And what difference would it make if we began to see ourselves as actually climbing into and being with Jesus and with this larger story of who God is, right? In fact, Stephen Fowle says that as you look at this particular passage, that you can't help, it's hard to know at times whether or not you're reading about the story of Paul or the story of Christ, because in Paul's mind, they are one thing. His mind, his life has been so embedded in the life of Christ that he almost can't differentiate the two. In other words, he has been able to take his struggles and see them as being in Christ and as being a part of Christ's story. And because of that, it has widened his perspective and he has been able to see those struggles in a way that might just bring joy and in a way that might actually bring hope and the good news of the gospel. Now, I think this is a hard concept for us to understand and I want you to know that. And I actually had this analogy that I had kind of built up and uh, it was with Epcot, with the Mexico Pavilion in Epcot and my trips to Mexicali, Mexico. It was going to be phenomenal. <laughs> but the more I got into it, the more I realized I had no idea what I was talking about either. And I thought if I didn't, then you guys won't either. And so I'm going to wait on that particular analogy. And so rather than that, as I continued to wrestle, I just began to ask the simple question of what did that mean in my life? What does it mean in my life, in those moments when I am able to see the struggle and the pain and to be able to figure out how that might fit into Christ and into Christ's desire in my life and Christ's desire in this world? And that's not always easy. Truth be told, oftentimes when we endure pain, what ends up happening is that we actually just kind of fold into ourselves in the midst of that pain and we isolate 
Rather than opening up and asking, how does what I'm going through right now, how does that fit into a larger story, an eternal perspective? Now, I, of course, I've not had to deal with persecution or suffering as few of us have simply because of our faith. Some of us probably have, but I haven't. But as I've kind of thought through some of those things, many of those things which I've shared uh, with you all, struggles with being the child of a divorced parent, um, being in charge of an organization that failed miserably, you know, all of these things that, quite frankly, are a little bit embarrassing usually. But, 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 but as, I've, as I've kind of worked through those, I've been able to see how those are a part of my own personal story. But, but the harder part, I think, that we don't always spend time reflecting on is asking the question, how does this shape and how does this put us in Christ's story? And as I thought about that, I was reminded of, of a story that I know I've shared with you that's very dear to, 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 to our hearts or, or close to our hearts, which is, which is the, the, the miscarriage that, that Megan had several, several years ago. And, and that's by far the hardest thing that Megan and I, I think, have ever endured together uh, as a couple. And, um, and if you've endured that, you know, you know the pain of that. And, um, but slowly and surely, as those years have passed, we've been able to kind of look at and to spend the time to say, how does this, how does this that happen that we can't explain why, how does this in some way fit into a larger story? What does this teach us in some way? Is there good news here at all? And, and, and so some of the things that we have begun to, to realize is, as we reflected on that is one of those is just on the preciousness of, of, of life. That whether, whether outside of the womb or, or even inside of the womb and, and even not, not ever having seen this child or known this child, we figure it was a girl um, because that's what we make. Um, but, but we don't know. But the pain, you know, the pain, as I've shared, of, 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 of touching, you know, Megan's stomach and, and knowing that the thing that was in there that had given us such hope that it wasn't alive. And of asking, what does this pain, what does this pain tell us? One of the things that the pain tells us is it's just that, that, that life is precious. That these children are precious. But it also taught us kind of the, the fragility of life and, and how dependent we really are on Christ. You know, the first, the first pregnancy that we had, it went swimmingly, and we had Shaughnessy, and, and we just thought, well, this is just what happens. You get pregnant, you have a kid. This is great. But that, that, that second, after that, in that whole, the whole time when Megan was pregnant for the third time, with, with, with what would become Adelie, our second born, is that we, you know, we felt that dependence. We prayed like we had never prayed before. And we felt ourselves kind of climbing into seeing things from the perspective of Christ. But not only that, then we also began to see even more so what a gift everything is. When Adelie was born, and we knew that she was okay, we held her, and we felt a gift unlike anything else. So that when we stand up here and we talk about how life is a gift and everything that we have is a gift, I want you to know that I feel it all the way to my core as I know that my wife does because of the fact that we have experienced what it's like when you don't have that gift. And to be able to celebrate that. That's one of the reasons why I love VBS. I'm going to dress up like a dadgum parrot this week. 
that is not why I went to seminary. But I am doing so because I know that the children that are out there are a gift. And in seeing things through being in Christ and seeing things not just from our own lives, if we had just focused on that, and this took us years. We're not as good at Paul. We didn't just kind of nail this all of a sudden the day after. No, no, no. This took us years to be able to see this, but to be able to, to see that rather than just becoming angry or bitter and the pain, it still was there and it still is there. But to see how that pain, if seen in Christ, in some ways can further the mission of God has made a dramatic difference in our lives, and in understanding that moment. But we see how the gospel can be proclaimed, it seems to me, even in the midst of that darkness. Several days after Megan had the miscarriage, there were some complications And so on Saturday night, we went to the hospital. And, uh, you know, we didn't know what was happening. We just know it was late and we were scared. It had already been a brutal week. And so we were there for several hours. It seemed like things were going to be okay. And we got home. I don't remember when. Sometime between 1 and 2, probably early Sunday morning. And I knew that that next day, right, um, that I was going to preach because I didn't have an associate, which meant that there was no way out. And it was the last thing I wanted to do, right? I did not want to stand up. And I did not want to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And I didn't, at least not explicitly. But what I did do, even though I didn't want to share it, I didn't have the strength not to, and people needed to know why their pastor was standing up there and sobbing. And so I simply told them, this is what happened. And as I did it, I didn't expect anything other than, I don't know what I expected, but as I looked at people, And then after the service, as people came and surrounded me, what I realized was that in some strange way, simply giving voice to this pain or this suffering, that there was gospel that happened in the midst of that. That people, they didn't say it out loud, as I can recall, but that as they were surrounding me, those who had undergone similar things that I had never would have known had I not just simply shared this, not out of some great ambition, but out of simply helplessness and weakness, people who came up to me, and in their so doing, did I hear Jesus say, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This was gospel news for a man who was broken and in pain, and for a woman who was broken and in pain as well. as we began to see that we were a part of this larger story, 
we were able to see how even just that simple sharing, that simple being honest. Remember, Paul doesn't tell us to be plastic or to be emotionally stoic. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? These chains, they feel really good. He doesn't say any of those things. But what he does say is that in the midst of that, in the midst of that, I believe as I look at this through the perspective and the lens of Christ, that there is still hope, that there is still good news, that the gospel can continue to be proclaimed because any time that someone can come and speak to you in the midst of your pain or loss or fear when you've lost your job or you've lost a child or you've lost a spouse or you've lost whatever it is, any time that someone can come there and simply come alongside of you and say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, that is the good news of the gospel. That is the kind of gospel that we are called to proclaim. But it can only happen when we understand ourselves as being within this larger story of Christ, as being within Christ. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what briar patch you may feel like you've been thrown into. I'm not here today to try to tell you that your pain can go away just like that. In fact, I don't think it probably should. But I am here to say this morning that God can take any pain, any struggle, any imprisonment. And in the midst of that, His light and His grace and His mercy can be found. And the more that we as a body can understand that and can celebrate that, even in the midst of pain, the more the good news of Jesus will be proclaimed here and throughout the world. Even to the point of being able to say to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let us pray. God, we come from various parts of our lives, various parts of these towns, all walks of life. But what we know is that suffering and pain People speaking ill of us, death is found all around us. No one is immune, God. You don't promise us that we will never have pain, but what you do say is that in the midst of that, you will be found. I pray, Lord, for each person here that whatever pain that is that they have experienced either right now or in the past, that perhaps, God, you can help them to begin to see things in the perspective of being found in you. As they are able to see these things in the eternal perspective, 
they might find grace and peace and healing. That they might experience your good news. It's in your name we pray. Amen.